2: I'm Maura Aaron Smealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better.
1: I try to turn you know, OCD or depression into something that makes me unique, something that makes me different. I have something different to offer to the world. That is how I try to turn it to the extent feasible into a positive. I am different, you know? Although, as I've seen, I I also have a lot in common with many, many other people. But instead of being mad at myself for being this way, I've tried to turn it into something to say, a lot of us are in this, this position. So you need to cut yourself some slack because, you know, would you be mad at yourself if you were epileptic and had a seizure? I would hope not. You shouldn't be mad at yourself if you are depressed and, you know, think your brain is isn't working as you would like. And and that's why, you know, I've tried to flip the script and, you know, I don't always succeed, but try to put a positive spin and try to help myself and help others, you know, through through taking what can sometimes be a personal frustration and if I can turn it into a positive
2: that's the voice of Mark Goldstein, a lawyer at Reed Smith who focuses on labor and employment. I originally read an article Mark had written, and I was impressed that he was writing and speaking about his depression and his obsessive compulsive disorder, something that's hard to talk about in a profession like his and, frankly, at the level he's at in his career. Something sat with me when I spoke with him last year. It was just that He had embraced his struggles with mental health as part of who he is and how much he employs the practice of self-compassion. So I wanted to reshare this episode with you today. It's one of my favorites, a look at how we beat ourselves up and how we try to live up to high, high pressures and expectations and how hard that is when you're struggling with your mental health. We'll hear also from Dr. Kristen Neff, Associate professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin and a world renowned expert on self compassion. First, here's my conversation with Mark Goldstein. Did you always feel, looking back, I mean, do you think you always had some depression and and other things in your profile, or did it really come on all of a sudden?
1: So in in looking back, I I think what was most prevalent over the course of my life was the obsessive-compulsive disorder. And to Mm. be clear, I didn't recognize this until a few years ago. I remember it was a few weeks before my bar mitzvah, now dating myself 23 years, I think. But I was obsessively chanting my haftorah for the weeks leading up to it. Like I couldn't fall asleep without doing it. I would just do it time and time again. And when I look back now, there are those obsessive tendencies that I didn't recognize them at the time for what they were, but they were manifestations of OCD. Depression and anxiety, which I've been diagnosed with as well, to a lesser extent, but definitely were prevalent. But really the OCD and looking back, it was amazing how much it had been a part of my life, but I hadn't even noticed it. Or I had noticed it, but I hadn't realized that it was a, you know, a mental health condition and not just, you know, you know, something else. I often say that, you know, what drives people to be a lawyer, but but many professions is is, you know, a sense of perfectionism, type A. And being OCD is frankly good for that. <laughs> To a point though, yeah. to a very fine point that if you go over that point or that line, then it gets concerning. And so for me it was you know good going through school. I did well you know in college and law school and it helped me as a young lawyer. For me and finally in 2017, I, I crossed that line of it helping me in terms of you know being a competent and a good lawyer. it, it went to a dark place.
2: I want to talk about that. But before we do, I think that there are, like being a lawyer, a lot of misconceptions around what being OCD is. I've said before on the show, we throw the term around, oh my God, you're so OCD. Look at your kitchen. Like, what does it even mean? What does OCD mean for you? How does it show up?
1: So it is, I'll give you the example how it manifested itself for me back in 2017. It is obsessive tendencies that I cannot stop. I cannot break a cycle of as much as I would like to and I know I'm doing engaging in an obsessive tendency that I don't want to be but I still can't stop. So for me, it, it was Labor Day weekend of 2017. And, and for whatever reason, I convinced myself that I had committed some instance of malpractice while at my firm. Now, this wasn't the result of an accusation or anything that anybody had said. And, and I know a lot of lawyers, you know, sometimes feel this way, but I just felt like I must have committed malpractice. So with that i decided that i needed to go through every email i'd ever received or sent every document i'd ever drafted during my you know then four and a half years at my firm looking for some instance of malpractice and i, I would have literally over the next spend the next six seven weeks obsessively checking you know emails and documents on every single matter i have had ever worked on and you know i'd wake up at three in the morning and tell my wife that i was going to get a glass of water downstairs and instead you know, I lied to her and I would go upstairs to uh, my office on the third floor and spend three hours checking the emails looking again, for some instance, malpractice, or I would hear a song. And, and a lyric in the song would remind me of a particular case that I had worked on. And I would have to go to my emails. So it wasn't just while I was in the office, or at home, it was anywhere. I mean, I, I can recall that Labor Day weekend, that Saturday, we were at dinner down at the Jersey Shore, and I went to the bathroom and spent 20 minutes checking emails. I could not stop checking my emails, could not stop checking documents. And I would lie to people about it. And I knew that it needed to stop, but I could not control myself.
2: It strikes me that, I mean, this was spurred by a Very deep seated anxiety. I mean, committing malpractice, I assume, would mean the end of your career and a lot of other scary stuff. Like, did anything set off that fear, or why do you think? Why do you think it's centered around that?
1: You know, I think it was the culmination of a whole host of things. In part, I hadn't taken a vacation in five years, which is my own doing. Nobody was stopping me from taking a vacation by any means. I just never took one. You know, it was it was a period where probably the depression and the anxiety combined with just being burnt out from not having taken time off all just exploded over this one weekend i I felt like two people like one who was living the situation and one outside my body who was watching the situation and i wanted to tell myself it's going to be okay the the person watching wanted to tell the person living it it's going to be okay but I, i i couldn't stop it the person living that it couldn't stop it couldn't stop the obsession couldn't you know stop being depressed couldn't stop the panic attacks you know it crippled my my personal life and my professional life Uh, when i was at work we have a wellness room on our floor i would spend most of my days laying on the couch in there just trying to breathe Mm -hmm. when i was at home i was largely in bed i was a you know terrible father or, or maybe not terrible but absentee father and husband Mm-hmm. You know, for for the period of late August to let's say mid October of 2017, I, I I felt like I just couldn't do anything. You know, I stopped listening to music, I stopped watching movies or TV shows because again, they they would have some trigger. Anything that had previously brought joy to my life, I just I wasn't able to enjoy. I wasn't able to engage it.
2: Were you able to get up and go to work most days? But even if you weren't able to do work.
1: Probably looking back, I would say probably sixty percent of the days, I, I was maybe seventy percent. I was able to go in, but I was a shell of myself there. Most days, either you know, I I'd take the train into work. Most days, I had a panic attack, either one or both of the ways, you know, to and from the city. It was clear to me that either I was having a heart attack or I was having a panic attack. You know, the frequency. Uh, you know, after a couple of them, I realized it wasn't a heart attack; it was a panic attack. It didn't make it any better, and it was—it's scary.
2: Oh, God. Well, so, so what happened? So you're in this period, you're in, it's fall of 2017.
1: So, you know, it was in this period, I, you know, with the support of my wife and my firm, I, I started seeing a psychiatrist and I was diagnosed quite quickly with OCD. And,
2: Did you ask for help? Or I'm just curious, just because just it's probably helpful yeah, to the audience. So, like, what happened? So it was a combination. I
1: had been seeing a therapist probably since the beginning of, of 17, and I remember that Tuesday morning after uh, Labor Day weekend, I went into him right away. We had a, a session, and he said, You know, you need to tell them that something's going on. So I went to the HR department at our firm, and they were amazing. And, you know, they said, Whatever you need, we have employee assistance programs. It was through my therapist that I got, I found a, a psychiatrist who was able to then diagnose me, uh, you know, within a few days with OCD, severe depression, and anxiety. And really, over the course of what I would say is the next six weeks, I, I you know, for lack of a better word, I, I would say I was a zombie. You know, as I say, because I think it's important to note, I never had suicidal ideations. And obviously, so sadly, many people do in those circumstances, but I did not think I would live till 2018. And I went through my days in a haze, in a fog, and it got to the point where by early October I realized you know, I was losing both my professional life and my personal life. On the professional side of things, my goal, as I think it is for many attorneys, was to make partner at my law firm. And I realized that nobody was gonna promote me to partner in the circumstance I was in. I mean, I I wasn't doing anything, you know, I wasn't able to function. And then, equally, if probably more importantly, uh, my personal life was falling apart, right? I was not a good husband, I was not a good father, I realized that, look, if I don't do something about this, I'm going to lose everything that's important in my life. And after many conversations with my wife, and you know, mental health professionals, I went into the HR department of my firm and I said, Look, I need to change something. So I told them I wanted to take a leave of absence. I said, Look, I don't know when I'll be back. I don't know if I'll be back. But I need I need something to change. And so on October 17th of 2017, uh, was the first day of my leave of absence. And I really honestly had no idea what I was gonna do. I, I did not think that I'd ever practice law again, to be honest with you. And what I ended up doing over you know the next about three months, I continued meeting with a psychologist, a psychiatrist. I added a cognitive behavioral therapist to the repertoire, mm-hmm. which was uh, really important because she gave me things like, she gave me homework. Things like, you know, my first week, as I said, I couldn't watch a TV show or movies because it would trigger something. I had to sit down and watch 30 minutes straight each day of a t- any TV show or any movie. And as silly as that sounds now, back in October of 17, that was as painful as anything to me. And then I also started, I engaged a, uh, a mindfulness coach taught me mindfulness and meditation. And I will tell you that I was the type of person who scoffed at that type of stuff before then. I mean, we'd had mindfulness training at our firm a few years earlier. And after about five minutes, I got up and left and a partner said to me, Can't you try to fit even five minutes of this stuff into your day? And I said, No, I don't have time. And I, you know, my wife said, look, what do you have to lose? (laughs) You literally have nothing to lose. And boy, was it, you know, as impactful as anything else. I mean it was as impactful as the medication I started taking, which you know I still take to this day. the, the mindfulness, the meditation it really helped change kind of the way I, I look at the world. And the example I tend to give in that regard you know is before I you know I, I started with all of this. you know anybody who's familiar with the New York City subway system at rush hour you know you're, it, it's uh, particularly I, you know I get the train at Penn station you know, you're fighting with your elbows to get on and, and you want to be the you want to get on that train. And not that I'm a perfect person because I'm far from it. But now what I try to do is look, if somebody else needs to get on that train ahead of me, they need to push their elbows, you know what, let them get on ahead, I'll take the next one. By early December, I started feeling better. I started kind of feeling like myself again, and I started having itch to practice law and. I ended up coming back to the firm in early January of 18, 11 weeks to the day after I had left. And I was equally as scared, if not more scared, as when I went out. Cause, you know, and, and I, I talked to a lot of people about you know mental health-related issues. I think one of the biggest concerns people have is retribution slash perception. Like if I tell people that I'm taking time off or, or anything related to a mental health issue, how will I be received? How will I be viewed by them? And for me, you know, I was just I was welcomed back with open arms. I mean, there was only a limited group of folks who knew why I had been out, but even but those folks treated me like, you know, like I had taken time off for for a personal reason and didn't have any, you know, relationship to my work and they treated me just the same and it was, you know, it was incredible.
2: Were you angry at yourself ever listening to your profile of such a hard-driving, achieving person? I would imagine that leaving work must have been a really big deal for you.
1: I thought I was weak.
2: Right. Like walking out of that firm Mm -hmm. and thinking, as you said, I'm never going to practice law, certainly here again. Like, how did you feel about yourself?
1: I thought I was weak. I thought that, you know, I think our firm has about 1800 attorneys. I thought I was, you know, all the other 1799 were able to deal with the stress of our jobs and our lives. Why am I the only weak one who's not able to, You know, and it took time for me to realize that a few things: one, that that perception was wrong; there was nothing weak about me, and secondly, that so many of those seventeen hundred ninety-nine are or have been in circumstances similar to myself, and that you know, you look at somebody and 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 you cannot tell by generally speaking by outward appearances, you know, what's going on in their mind. You know, so I alone in the fall of twenty seventeen. And in the years since, it's it's been incredible for me to see how many people can relate to the issues that I was going through, either personally or with respect to a loved one or a friend. You know, there there was nothing weak about it, but, but that's how I felt at the time. And so I perceived myself like, why can I be strong like every other person at my firm or every other lawyer, frankly?
2: And how did you come around to sort of, I guess, have more compassion for yourself and say... I wasn't weak, I needed help, and that was okay.
1: There were a few things. I mean, a lot of conversations with my wife, uh, with my parents, with my brother, my sister-in-law, my family in general. And then, really, there were there were a couple of things. One was uh, our firm has a disability inclusion group, the acronym for which is LEADERS, and I joined that in the summer of 2018, a few months after I was back. And I'd met all these people, both attorneys and and, and non-attorneys at our firm, who you know had been through similar circumstances and i was i was shocked i was absolutely blown away by this it, it was amazing to me to see it was people who you know i walked down the hall you have no idea the circumstances they'd had in their life or, or a family member or a friend had gone through you know people who you know great books of business well respected and they could relate to what i i had felt but i had no idea until that point and That really changed things for me. It made me feel like, look, none of us is alone in this, whether you're a lawyer or not. Anybody who has mental health suffers from a mental health disability, and you know, it's a tangential issue, it took me a long time to accept the fact that a mental health condition is a disability akin to a physical disability. You know, it, it took me a long time to realize that, hey, there are so many people who can relate to this, but very few of us are standing up and saying, hey, I'm suffering or I've suffered, you're not alone.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life.
1: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to...
0: If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
2: Practicing self-compassion is easier said than done, (laughs) like so many things in our lives. And so we wanted to go to an expert on exactly how to do it. Dr. Kristen Neff is a professor at the University of Texas, and also the author of the books, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and Fierce Self-Compassion. I spoke to her about some practical tips we can all incorporate for our high-achieving selves. So, Dr. Kristen Neff, you are famous for your work on self-compassion. I'm curious, why do you study self-compassion? What got you interested in it? And why do we all need to have it as a tool in our toolbox?
0: Well, the reason I got interested in self-compassion is it was actually my last year of graduate school and I was just a mess. I was stressed about finishing. I'd just gotten out of a divorce and I'd actually heard that mindfulness meditation was good for stress. And so I went to a group that taught in the tradition of a teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a a meditation teacher, but he talks a lot about self-compassion. And I started being compassionate to myself. Even well before I even learned how to meditate, which is kind of more complex, I just started to be kind to myself. Like the teacher said, you know, just turn compassion inward. So I said, hey, Kristen, I, you know, I'm so sorry you're stressed. You know, you aren't the only one who's stressed. I'm here for you. I tried to feel like warmth and care. And I was just blown away by the immediate difference it made in my ability to cope with all the stress I was going through. And so when I got a professorship, I decided I wanted to research it. And the reason you know, I've really devoted my life to this topic is because it makes such a huge difference in people's ability to cope with difficulty, right? So compassion, calm is with, compassion means to suffer. So it's basically how we are with our suffering, how we relate to our suffering. Are we hard? Are we judgmental? Are we cold? Do we feel isolated? Or are we warm, supportive? Do we remember that, hey, this is part of life? This is a journey that we all have to take. And making that switch and what we know from the research, as well as primarily the reason I care is because I know from my personal practice,
2: it just makes mm-hmm. such a big difference in our ability to cope with the, with the difficulties of life. And sometimes we have to fake caring for ourselves, even if we really <laughs> don't feel we care for well, ourselves. In
0: some ways, fake it till you make it. I mean, right. So it may be hard at first, right? If that's been
2: your, if your pattern your whole
0: life is to be meaning and self-critical. It does feel a little inauthentic at first. You want to make sure you aren't like using positive affirmations. Positive affirmations is like every day and every way I'm getting stronger and stronger. Well, maybe you aren't. It's more like mm-hmm. it's more like the compassionate mess. I'm so sorry you're such a mess. Is there anything I can do to help? Right. <laughs> so you want to be authentic about it. You don't want to deny the issues you're having, but it's really allowing yourself to kind of be moved. your own suffering the way you might be moved by the suffering of a friend to really feel that caring that desire to help really compassion is a motivation a motivation to help in some way Um, and feeling connected this isn't like self-pity it's not like oh woe is me it's just saying hey the human experience is one of imperfection we all struggle no one's perfect there's nothing wrong with me for feeling this way this is like this is part of what it means to be human i'm not alone uh, and then mindfulness is a really important part of self-compassion because if we ignore our pain or conversely, if we get lost in it, if we like ruminate on it or we get stuck in it, then we actually can't help ourselves. So we need some balanced distance. We need to be aware of our pain, but in a way that has some perspective and space around it. And then when we do that, we can be most helpful to ourselves. That's
2: great. Why are we as humans so self-critical? Some of us. What? Wh- why did yeah. evolution make us self-critical?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, I think there are both physiological and cultural reasons. So in terms of why evolution made us this way, you know, you probably know this, that, that we evolved to have anxious negative brains, right, They're, that are very threat focused um, so that we could survive, you know, as predators trying to run after us. Um, now we also we didn't just evolve to be threat focused. We also evolved to be care focused toward others. So basically, there's there's two main nervous system um, systems in our body. Right. So one is the fight, flight, or freeze response. Right, which happens when we feel threatened. And of course, what happens with self criticism is when we fail or make a mistake or things are really difficult, we feel threatened. So we go into fight, fight, or freeze response. And so we fight ourselves because we're the problem, right? Thinking that somehow we could control our behavior, or we flee into shame, kind of like, you know, hanging our heads to avoid the perceived judgments of others, or we freeze and get stuck in rumination, you know, just like, it's, maybe if I think about it for the 20th time, it'll go away. Mm. Now, when you're, when your child, or your best friend is threatened, you don't go in necessarily into fight, flight, or freeze mode because you aren't personally threatened. You're, so you're more able to draw into the second system, which is the tend and befriend response or the caregiving system, which primarily evolved to take care of others, right? So parents who are better caretakers, their children are more likely to survive. So that's a physiological reason. Actually, what we're doing with self-compassion is we're, we're doing it. You might say an evolutionary hack. <laughs> we're hacking into the system that was designed to care for others and using it for ourselves so that's the evolutionary reason but there's also so many um cultural reasons for you know we're, we're raised to be compassionate to others we think it's a good thing but we think being self-compassionate means you'll be lazy you'll be selfish you'll lose your motivation you'll be weak and so we really have to combat a lot it's really a radical act to be mm-hmm. self-compassionate because our culture doesn't uh what's the word i want our culture doesn't shoot why well, must not inspire move. You know what I'm saying? What's the word I'm looking for? Our culture. Oh, doesn't our culture reward. doesn't encourage that. No, it doesn't <laughs> reward it. Our culture doesn't encourage that way of, of being with ourselves. And our brain doesn't either. So there you go. The decks are stacked against us. Yeah. But, but the good news is, the really good news is, and this is kind of what surprised me in my work is that it's easier than you might think to be self-compassionate because we already have such a good model in terms of being compassionate to others. Most of us have been encouraged by our culture. And again, we've got these evolved systems to where we know how to be kind and listen and to be patient and to be encouraging, warm, empathetic. And so all we really need to do is first of all, remember, and then next give ourselves permission to use this warm caring system with ourselves
2: you've written that the internal working model of self is essentially who we believe we are worthy of love and respect or acceptable just as we are. And those of us who are insecurely attached, and you said, yes, I count myself among them <laughs> have been shown in research, not just to be less confident, but more self-critical. So is that a process that you had to go through that you had to teach yourself self-compassion because of both maybe who you are and how you were raised?
0: Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, I, I, in that paragraph, I didn't talk about the nuances, but I would say I was securely attached with my mother and insecurely attached with my father. Right. So it Mm. often happens. So my insecurity would happen more in the realm of men, Mm. (laughs) but not so much like in the realm of friends. And I think that that often is the case. My mother, I mean, I really have to give her credit. She, in many ways, she she made me feel secure. She met my needs. And I think in many ways, that's why I'm so successful, but my love life hasn't been so good. (laughs) 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 you know um and uh yeah since i've written that book i i got also divorced from rupert who was who if you're reading my first book he was my husband and that kind of all went to hell in a handbasket as well so yeah it's something i've had to really uh work toward i mean that feeling of being rejected which started very very young it's still there it gets triggered fairly easily but what I what I know now, even though the feeling still comes up, right, what I know now is when that feeling comes up, I just really need to turn to self-compassion. I really need to turn toward myself and make sure that my feelings of love, of connection, of worthiness are not dependent on any external source, but are really found within. And it makes a huge difference
2: could you talk us through maybe an internal exercise that you might do when you're in a situation and you feel the heat rising yeah. and you want to consider whether to turn on the fierce self-compassion or the mama, mama kind.
0: Yeah. Well, you might say the the, the fierceness is already arising, right? Because we don't mm-hmm. really control that. So anger is it just, again, it's just a very natural response, a self-protective response. So I have actually, in, in my new book, I developed some exercises to try to help people deal with difficult feelings like anger. Um, the first thing, the first thing is not to judge it, right? So, so often we suppress it, we we judge it, we, we bottle it down. and Then, of course, it just explodes and spills all over everyone. So to actually feel it as an energy in your body and thank it. I mean, literally, it sounds crazy, but thank you. Thank you, anger, for trying to protect me. Right? and just let the feelings of the energy flow in your body and you know, not suppress them, not harm them, not judge them, not do anything other than feel them at first, and then see if you can harness it for good. So there's there's three components of self-compassion, which I've identified mm. mindfulness, a sense of common humanity, and kindness. And when you're angry, when you're protecting yourself, these components manifest as brave, empowered clarity. Right. So the anger is, as a, for, when it's in the service of kindness, in other words, when it's in the service of protection, it makes you very brave. It allows you to speak up, to stand up for yourself. Common humanity actually helps you feel empowered when you realize it's not like just you all separate. It's only you that when you realize like, Hey, when I stand up for myself, I'm standing up for all women or maybe all all people who are being treated unfairly or it's a basic human right to be treated a certain way, right? It's, I'm not alone, it's part of being human. And then the mindfulness can give you real clarity. If we aren't mindful, we might just not notice it. I mean, think for all the years, women just said, Oh,
2: that's just the way men are. They're just handsy.
0: The movies told us all oh, that they're just handsy, right? And it's really only our ability to really look at it and say, wait a second. This is causing harm. This is okay. And a lot of that came from mindfulness, the willingness to turn toward rather than turn away from what was actually happening that allows us to take a stand. You know, this is all self-compassion. People think self-compassion is just, you know, gentle and soft and accepting. Sometimes it's just the opposite. It's really just about alleviating suffering and that can look a million different ways.
2: You know, I spoke with a lawyer who had been... So trapped by his own definition of self, he was so trapped by this image of hardworking, never complaining, that he he got stuck. Really, yeah. you know, yeah. and his sort of judger in chief, which was himself, was so stuck in a mode. How do we even begin to separate from that and give ourselves a little break? You know, the piece of ourselves that is always expected to be the best, to be special. Yes. You know, it has no time. How dare you be less than perfect, it might say to us.
0: Right, right. There's the saying in the self-compassion world, which is the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. <laughs> right? So you, you, actually, you actually change your goal instead of being perfect or instead of always getting it right. Your goal is simply to be warm, compassionate, and supportive, regardless of what happens, whether you get it wrong or right. And ironically, people think that this is going to mean you're going to get it wrong more often. It's actually the opposite, because what happens is when you make a mistake and you beat yourself up, you're going to be anxious, you become (laughs) afraid of failure, it's going to be harder to improve. But if you're warm and supportive and you say, okay, everyone fails what can I learn from this situation? Then you're actually more able to grow and change and be motivated to, to do better next time. So really just taking the focus off of the outcome, getting it right, and really focusing more on, again, what can I learn? How can I support myself? How can I do the best I can? Just because my behavior maybe isn't as good as I would like it to be, that doesn't mean that I'm not okay. You know, maybe my behavior
2: needs a little work, but I'm okay as I am. I'm okay exactly where I am. I'm I'm a process. What if the rumination kicks in, which is kind of a habit for so many of us? Yeah,
0: yeah. So rumination is when you get stuck in that loop over and over again. And really, the first thing is just to recognize this is the safety response. This is actually the freeze response. We feel stuck. We don't know what to do. And part of that is because we're scared. You know, we're anxious. Uh, we're afraid if, if we do something different, we'll, it'll be harmed or, you know, we're kind of like stuck because we don't know what to do. We feel overwhelmed. The very first thing to do is give compassion to that. It's hard. So there's, again, there's three components to compassion, mindfulness, common and humanity, and kindness. So you can first of all just be aware. Wow. That it's really difficult to feel stuck. It's hard to feel this. You know, it's, this is painful. Uh, you feel overwhelmed or it's so difficult. Common humanity. It's not just me who does this. This is part of being human. This is part of the way the brain evolved. You know, I'm certainly not the only one. Oftentimes, we we kind of fall into the trap of thinking it's just us. You know, as if everyone else is perfect and it's just me who's ruminating or anxious or whatever my issue is. So just remembering, this is part of the human experience. There's nothing wrong with you for feeling this way. This just happens. And then kindness. You might think, what would I say to a friend who said, hey, you know, I just feel so stuck right now. You probably wouldn't say, you stupid idiot. I mean, hopefully you (laughs) wouldn't say that, right? But we say that to ourselves thinking somehow that's going to help.
2: Let's talk about naming and labeling for a second, actually, because I think a lot of us, we use our labels both as something that feels very familiar and and we may accept it, but sometimes we use that... We use the crazy word, you know. We we sort of diminish ourselves internally and become such a strong critic. I'm curious if if how you feel about how the labels we use both for ourselves and that other people use for us, and how you could begin to start talking to yourself differently.
0: So some labels I think are helpful and some aren't, right? So my yeah. so my son has an anxiety disorder. He also has um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And getting him diagnosed actually really helped. <laughs> helped us get, get him on the right medication, get him the right type of therapy, right? So um, recognizing that, you know, most of us have some sort of <laughs> disorder, right? That, again, that's the way most brains are are created. So recognizing that, you know, some brains are designed to be more anxious than others. It's not your fault you didn't choose to have that brain or maybe the particular upbringing that led you to be have more anxiety than others. And so you don't need to blame yourself. You know, at the same time, you want to be able to help yourself be as happy and, you know, productive as possible, given the way your particular brain works. So again, you can acknowledge what's happening, but just because your brain has a tendency to produce too much cortisol, maybe, you know, what's too much? You know, if you're exactly. if you're running from a lion, maybe it wouldn't be too much, right? So yeah, so really working with what biology has given us and what culture has given us and trying to make the best of it well, how do we do that? Do we do that with blame? Like, I shouldn't be this way. There's something wrong with me for being this way or just saying, okay, how can I help support myself, be as happy and productive as I can be? You know, your worth as a person is not defined by your particular brain patterns. <laughs> I'm mean, like, I say my, my, I don't have a lot of anxiety, but reactive anger is part of my, part of my brain makeup, you know, and. And think about that. I'm supposed to be like this mindfulness and self-compassion teacher who has a problem with reactive anger. I
2: mean, how does that sit with you? You know, what does that mean? Reactive anger?
0: Well, so if someone, if I get triggered, like if someone, and for me, it's often like, I won't get it, but there's like this whole war about my scale and what it means and how it should be used. And it makes me angry. And so sometimes <laughs> I like shoot off an email that maybe wasn't the most professional email. You know, it's just kind of, that's just kind of the way I roll. And so, yeah, not that I don't work on it, but what really helps me is this idea of being a compassionate mess. You know, that it's not so much about getting it right. Of course, you want to do the best you can. You don't want to harm others, all those things. Yes, yes, yes. And what's more important than getting it right is opening your heart. Because really, where does our happiness come from? Where does our sense of deep satisfaction and meaning come from? It actually doesn't come from getting it right because that's temporary. You might get it right for a while, but then you'll get it wrong. Life happens. And even if you get it right a lot of the time, you're eventually going to get sick and old and die. I'm sorry to break the news, but that's reality, right? Everything changes. But the quality of our heart being open, feeling love, feeling connected, feeling, you know, um, this, this, sense of oneness, the sense of um, beauty, which comes from having an open heart, that's really where our happiness and satisfaction lies. So if we shift our focus away from just getting it right to really primarily opening our heart, as we try to get it right as best we can, it makes a huge difference, huge difference. I can tell you personally, that's been my experience.
2: That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.